Hi everyone, I'm Jennifer, the host of Ikigai with Jennifer Shinkai, where we're going to talk about the Japanese concept of Ikigai or living a life of purpose. Here you're going to hear inspirational stories from all different types of people who are finding their own life of purpose. You're going to hear about how they found their Ikigai and what they do every day to live an integrated life. So without further ado, let's dive right in. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, actually. First good evening uh, recording for Ikigai with Jennifer Shinkai. And I am delighted to have my very, very special guest who uh, made time for me at such short notice, Matthew Dons. I said, I don't have your bio. I don't know what to talk about you. So I'm going to first of all say how I met Matthew and what I know him for. And then he's going to tell you all of these hidden (laughs) secrets about himself that I don't know with his many alter egos and really wide interests. But Matthew Dons, I met through Tracy Northcott, a mutual friend in the Make March Matter group. And Matthew came in helping out all of these very desperate entrepreneurs whose businesses had been slashed last year by COVID cancellations, suddenly found ourselves with a lot of time on our hands, potentially to think about our marketing plans. And uh, as a British-born, Japan-residing marketing consultant, he's told us what marketing really is. And I have been known to send a spur email or two, which has really led to business. So this man knows what he's talking about. Um, I've also been astounded by his uh, sleight of hand table magic in a very rare get together in Tranamon Hills, it wasn't it? Uh, yeah, it was. Yeah. It was Tranamon Hills and the weather was gorgeous and we sat outside. It was maybe like May? Yeah, again with Tracy. Yeah, you, you and I and Tracy. Yeah. And uh, you were very patient with us as we said, but we can't do that. We gather you like, just do it, just do it. So that's how I got to know you and joined uh, several of your workshops and also through a mutual friend as well of Angela Ortiz, who you helped her with her book. And her life. And her life. (laughs) And (laughs) yeah, so from from those perspectives, but there's there's a secret side of you, (laughs) Caramoon, Caramoon, that I don't know. So tell me about this a little bit more. So when I was a kid, I had a computer. Actually, no, I was around computers from a really young age. Both my parents were teachers. And like you, I'm very British. And one of the things that used to happen in England was people would steal computers from schools. Well, maybe where you were brought up. No, all over the UK. (laughs) The solution to this, instead of securing the schools, the solution was actually quite clever, which was to encourage teachers to take computers home at weekends, which is when the schools were getting broken into. Of course, this got the kids to uh, the teachers to play around with computers so even though my parents were not computer literate at all they're all, always with computers at home at least at the weekends and these were you know the computers like the bbc micro yeah and spectrum so technology was kind of a big thing for me growing up little buttons with the colors i remember that so well and i was i was just amazed by the like the creative potential because mm. if you remember, you turn on the computer, it would be a blank screen with a flashing cursor. Yes. And you had to like type something to make it do something. So tech was always a, always a big thing. And I had some friends whose parents were more kind of yeah, technical than mine. And later I had my own computer. And one day a friend kind of gave me a smuggled floppy disk. And <laughs> he didn't have, how was it? It was, an, it was a disk for an Amiga. I had an Amiga. He didn't have an Amiga. He had um, the uh, Amstrad computer from uh, the delightful Alan Sugar. And I put this disc in and it loaded up 
like a simple menu where you could click on articles and these articles would you know load up and this was my introduction to what we commonly call the underground and it was a a disk of text files so if you remember before pdfs and things we used to text files on the web and you could download them this is this is before the web was really a thing yeah possibly even yeah maybe even one or two years before the commercial web and it was mind-blowing to read these text files about how to make free phone calls or how to break into computer systems or how to make smoke bombs. I don't know what, know what is going to come up now when I post this on YouTube, <laughs> if my channel gets put down now. So my friends and I were all always going to the garden centre to buy the potassium nitrate oh for our smoke bombs. Stop doing the list of ingredients on this channel. And cooking it up in the kitchen. <laughs> and occasionally, occasionally it would go off when you're cooking it because you melt you melt sugar, right? You caramelize sugar. Then you add an equal amount of potassium nitrate. Recipe below. <laughs> if you didn't clean the saucepan correctly, then yeah, it's like it catches fire. The whole house fills up with smoke. Parents must have loved that. So I discovered this whole other world of like stuff you're not really meant to do. Uh, lock picking as well and that kind of thing. And then it was sort of, I never really kind of became skilled, I guess. And But it was just this thing I was interested in and I'd get hacker magazines and things like that. And then moved to, well, I came to Tokyo temporarily, end of 2001. I studied um, mathematics at university and I was really interested in tech, but I didn't really have any community of people that were sort of showing me things or anything, which is how, you know, the hacker community generally works. But when I arrived in Tokyo I went to Tower Records and they had a hacker magazine called 2600 magazine so I picked that up and I understood three <laughs> percent of what was in the magazine or something and this was the kind of a magical time when Japan had just started doing broadband internet right so 2001 was when were you here in Japan yes I came in 1999 okay so if you remember around 2000 2001 it was when outside all the train stations, there was Yahoo. Do you remember there'd be these tables and people handing out these big bags with Yahoo on and you'd go to take a bag and they'd say, oh, you need to give us your credit card information because this is for Yahoo BB, which was the Yahoo broadband. Ah, so we had... I remember Yahoo BB. Yeah, so we had cheap, very fast internet. Mm. And then Wi-Fi was just becoming a thing shortly after that as well. So it's an amazing time. And I went to some secondhand bookstores and the local library. So yeah, a friend of mine was doing a university degree in Ikebukuro, so we could use the university library. I just got all the tech books I could find. Yeah. I just studied and studied and studied just to understand what was in the magazine, really. <laughs> and I learned about how you get into Wi-Fi networks, how you explore the phone system, how you protect your privacy which, you know, is now a huge, huge thing online. And, it, you know, it's also, I've, I've got two kids and I have to think, like, what do I need to teach them about using the web safely? Yeah. What information can you share on social media and what shouldn't you share? So all throughout this time, I used the name Caramoon, which just came from a game, a video game I played as a kid. So like on social media, I was all Caramoon. And then I discovered marketing, which we can maybe talk about later. and. So then I had these two parallel lives, kind of the, the tech and the marketing thing. A bit before the marketing thing, I 
organized a big tech conference in Tokyo called Bar Camp. Bar Camp is it's an unconference. Okay. So just like an unbirthday in Alice in Wonderland. Yeah. So with the unconference, you look at all the things that are not good about the conference model and try and reverse them or invert them. So one of the big problems with conferences is they cost money to go to. A lot of the big commercial tech ones are invite only. Yeah. There's a very famous one called Foo Camp run by O'Reilly. And of course, like TED, the TED Talks, you do another example. Uh, another problem is there's not much interaction. A big problem for organizers is speakers not turning up or not being good speakers. So with the unconference model, what we do is there's no schedule. Yeah. It's like open space technology, right? Yeah. Vote with your feet. Yeah, exactly. And everyone's encouraged to participate either by running a workshop or giving a talk or something like that mm. to have an empty schedule. So yeah, I ran a big bar camp in Tokyo. I think we had about 100 people, a free one-day conference. Everyone said it was impossible to do in the center of Tokyo. And that was a real epiphany for me because the way I did it was I found some instructions on the web I looked at them, I, they were obviously nonsense, obviously wasn't going to work, but I was just annoyed. So I thought, well, I'm going to follow them just to prove to myself this is nonsense. And it worked perfectly. <laughs> so one of the things, for example, it said is you set a date, you just choose a date, right, to suit you. Yeah. You don't try and get a date that works for other people because it's never going to, it's going to clash with yeah. Olympics and terrorist attacks and whatever pandemics yeah and then you say it's happening before you've got a venue and I thought that's just clearly ridiculous but the idea is that if you kind of get some hype around it then you've got lots of people looking out for venues and things yes and the venue doesn't become the reason why I can't come exactly yeah and with money you look at the costs and try and connect sponsors directly to the cost so that money doesn't uh, you don't touch the money so, for example, we had a catering company provided the, they sponsored the breakfast and oh, no, that was it. We, they sponsored the lunch. So that was their thing. They also did the catering for the breakfast that was sponsored by a tech company. The tech company paid directly to the catering company, not touching my bank account. Because, you know, without having a legal entity or whatever, you don't want you know, thousands of dollars piling up in your bank account and then things get cancelled or changed and people accuse you of fraud or whatever. Right. Oh, cool. That's great advice. Connecting, you know, sponsors together with the costs. And it's also much easier to approach a sponsor because instead of saying, Jennifer, could you give us some money for this conference? You say, Jennifer, would you better pay for the breakfast? Yeah. And you just choose whatever you want. Right. So if I just want to give like... And on a giri, it's the breakfast, so like a rice bowl. Or, but if I want to do like a full amazing spread, like that's up to me and my budget. You just like make sure there is food. We expect this many people. Yeah. And it's your name that's on it. So mm -hmm. as the sponsor, yeah, it's all yours. From this event, a whole lot of stuff happened in Tokyo. It kind of started a proper tech community here. So so the, the reason I was so committed to this event is I had attended a very, very bad talk at Tokyo PCs user group and I kind of I remember going home on a train thinking I'm going to quit Japan like this is pathetic that we don't have anything here this would have been around 2010 I guess yeah 11 years ago there just wasn't much community here 
for expats, there wasn't a lot of kind of interesting tech. You know, I'd, I'd read about stuff happening in other countries, social movements. and Yeah, where is it here? Where is it here? You know, that's come, that's come out in so many interviews of people going, this doesn't exist, this thing that I want, this problem that I have, I'm just going to solve it myself and then there must be other people so Nina Cataldo made the Hafu ladies group to solve a specific problem and Sarah Liu created the dream collective because she was struggling to like advance in her career um, yeah so many uh, yeah Noemi Inoue decided to run for office yeah naturalize and run for office because she was like there's no one like representing the foreign community so I'm going to run for council person I mean she had a big step because yeah. she also naturalized but yeah, just it's really interesting to to see that that trend coming up a lot of the people mm. who end up being on this show. Yeah, I mean, I was going to do something or I was going to leave Japan. Yeah, so you want to stay? So I'm just going to build it for myself. And I, I knew it wasn't going to work because, I mean, what a stupid idea to like say that you're going to organize a conference without any money or legal entity or place to do it. And a lot of stuff came out of that. So Tokyo Hackerspace came out of that. And yeah, just bump started a lot of kind of community here. Yeah, it was very interesting having these para, parallel lives. So yes. I did that under the name Kara Moon. And yeah, that's always been funny. Like, so there's the group Tokyo Few that a long time ago, it used to be called Foreign Executive Women. Yes, I know. I'm a, I'm a member. So then I spoke at Tokyo Few under the name Kara Moon about computer security and kind of a couple of years later spoke under my name Matthew about uh, direct response marketing. Right. Real marketing. And that's how I met people like Angela and Tracy. Ah. Yeah. So it's a fantastic group for you. Really yes. Know. I think Tracy's back on the board. Yes. Yeah. Doing events. So maybe you'll get invited back again. Exactly, yes. <laughs> You've exactly. been waiting for that in the, in the thing. Uh, but one of the reasons that I asked you to come and you very uh, kindly said is actually linked to your clear love of learning and finding out and solving problems because you were hit with one of the biggest problems that people have in their life with the diagnosis of terminal cancer. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to talk to you about that in the terms of connection to Ikigai, right? Because Ikigai is about a reason to live. Yeah. And so how with that prognosis, because you had, it was very bad. And as I'm going to share um, some of your other interviews so that people can find out more about that. And especially the, the link that you shared with me this week, there's loads of really practical advice and information about the treatments that you had, the things that you did. So I think it's really valuable for um, people to check that out. But the question, you know, how do you think about that reason to live when you're hit with a diagnosis like that? Mm. So, yeah, I remember obviously very clearly five years ago when yeah. I went to uh, get some test results and, yep, they said it's cancer. And that was okay. It was, you know, I thought, oh, well, I'll have the have the treatment, yep. whatever it is, and be okay after a while, obviously. And then a week later, I went back for more test results from a different doctor. And I had prepared all these kind of questions and stuff about treatments yeah. and the doctor said, you know, do, do I really want to see these results? And I thought, okay. And I said, well, you know, I understand it's either going to be no news or bad news. And he said, yeah, this is very much bad news. It's terminal. <laughs> and then even that did not prepare me for the worst news yet to come, which was kind of about a week later. 
when I found that it's the cancer had spread to my um, abdominal membrane, mm. which is very, very hard to treat because the there's not a great blood supply. So it's very difficult to like get drugs into there. And the tumors, instead of being like a, a tumor growing, it's like a shotgun effect with lots right. of little tumors sprinkled across it. So you can't do radiotherapy or anything like that. Mm. It's just not possible to target, you know, 100 two millimeter tumors or whatever. So that was one year, found like seven to nine months. And uh, obviously I had to think what to do and think about time a lot and not having much time left mm. and thinking how to spend the time. And this, this incredible conflict between being desperate to find better treatments and live kind of cut, you know, the conflict between that and just spending time with my kids and yeah. friends and family. And it's kind of like an impossible puzzle and trying to be as focused as possible as like learning as much as possible about cancer and cancer treatments. And are there any possibilities? Because the, the impression I got from um, the doctor in the UK was, well, we'll give you some treatment and you live a bit, but yeah. that's it. I mean, there's no, there's no kind of hope. Right. Write your bucket list. Don't make it too long. Yeah, exactly. So, and then that also made me think a lot about hope and optimism and what it really means to me. And you know, you know, I'm, you know, I think you know, I'm an incredibly negative, cynical person, and um, which I think is the best way to be. And I remember hearing this quote. I don't know the origin, but I think it was used by like the interim president of Iraq after Iraq was like invaded and Saddam was kicked out. He said optimism is like the blind belief that things are going to get better by themselves hope is the idea that there's still a chance and therefore it's worth fighting mm. and improving and i thought a lot about that because i'm a very negative pessimistic person but i'm incredibly mm. hopeful and that's not hope based on touchy-feely kind of rainbows and unicorns it's you just look at the facts and as long as people are alive there's stuff you can do yeah Basically, mm. there's always there's always action you can take. So I had to think about why I'm alive and what that means. And and again, there's there's conflict because of, on the one hand, like living for the kids, so living for my two children, and on the other hand, there's like stuff I want to do in my life as well. And it's hard to justify doing any of it when I could be sitting down doing a jigsaw puzzle with my daughter or reading a book to my son or whatever yeah yes so it is very conflicted so how do you how do you manage that conflict in like in the moment so in the moment I thought like the priority should be take care of my family and friends second priority is kind of try and do some good in the world and then third priority is like learn about the nature of existence Mm. so those kind of three things so when I was a kid I was always fascinated by cosmology and the big bang and yeah if you remember there was that very fashionable book a brief history of time yeah everyone had and almost nobody read and I read read it properly as a young teenager and I got into relativity and all that kind of stuff and read a lot of amazing books and then um school put me off learning for a bit particularly put me off reading for a bit and uh rediscover it later yeah so those three things really like what can i do in this instant particularly to like make the future better for my kids Mm. and to some extent make the future better for myself 
it's like we discussed another time, you know, doing doing things that future Jennifer will look back and be glad that current Jennifer did them. Yes. Right. So, and, and of course, I mean, now when I think back five years ago, I was in the UK for what was meant to be a three month trip. Yeah. And about halfway through, I got the terminal cancer diagnosis. And although I'm not particularly clever and not particularly hardworking, I did some stuff right, which is, you know, I followed the, 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 the three steps of, yeah, not worrying alone, which means like tell a lot of people yeah. what the situation is, get the facts. I spent a lot of time getting the facts and then making a plan, which is very interesting because the, the doctors had no plan. Um, they, they didn't have anything that I would call a plan. Mm. They had like stuff we do, but it wasn't like a plan. It wasn't like we're going to do this and with this proper goal and we're going to look into these other options and hopefully these new treatments will become available at a certain time. It was nothing like that. It was like, oh, so sorry to tell you it's terminal. And this is this is like the path to palliative care and, well, yeah. Exactly. It reminds me, I know the context is totally different, but when you're talking, it's, I'm thinking of career planning and how nobody cares about your career apart from yourself. Yeah. And the same for your health. Like I'm not saying, of course, doctors care and you know, they, they, they want the best for mm-hmm. you. But in terms of the level of interest that they are, can put into each individual patient, yeah. You know, they just don't have the resources. So nobody cares as much as you. Yeah, particularly over time. So, you know, doctors have interest and care in the time that you're sat in front of them. And then they've got another patient. And in England, five-minute appointments with the GPs, right? So a doctor had five minutes to tell me it was terminal. There's kind of reasons why that basically I couldn't get to see a consultant quickly because the NHS is all kind of slow. I worked out that you could um, go to like the doctor who, the clinic that ordered the tests and get the results from them. And as a patient, you like, you have to be given your results. So I worked out that although I had this appointment for like four weeks in the future to meet the consultant, I could just go to the local GP's office and say, I had a scan last week. Please print yeah. out the result. Yeah, so now I'm very, very grateful for the Matthew five years ago. You know, I could have panicked. I could have, it would have been very sensible just to give up. Yeah. Well, but it wouldn't even be giving up because I was just told that this was it. Mm. Well, it, it. You know, that there was no fight, just this is it. It's terminal cancer, you know, nothing can be done. So, yeah. so I'm very grateful now looking back. So part of my thing about trying to live a useful life for my kids is thinking, what can I do for them? Or what can I encourage them to do? So they will look back on this time and be kind of glad that was how we spent the time. Right. And and that's how you do all this uh, volunteer work with the kids and bringing them into the community, right? And arranging play stuff. And... Yeah, ex- exactly. So you know, when I was a child, there was a lot of non-profit stuff around. 
I was in a hippie organization as a kid called the Woodcroft Folk that you may oh, know. That sounds amazing. I've never heard of it, which sounds very cool. And then uh, later Sea Scouts. And there was just lots of stuff going on. Whereas in Japan, there isn't because mm. schools do things. Yeah. And what, what, what's it? Is it Bukatsu? How do I say Bukat- Bukatsu. Bukatsu. Yeah. Club activities. Club activities. And I mean, did you see this tragic thing on Twitter recently? An elementary school teacher who's a, a prolific Twitterer or tweeter, he um, asked all his teachers, just as a survey, like what's the importance of the Bukatsu club activities yeah. and got these different answers. And there were things like, if we don't run the activity, oh, no, that was it. What, the question was, why should they be compulsory? Because most schools, they're compulsory. Right? And their answers were things like, well, if, we, if they're not compulsory, then we can't charge a fee to every child for them. Ah, so it's not fair. If, they, if they're not compulsory, then some groups might not get enough members to run. And they're like all these different answers. Not even one answer mentioned any benefit to the children. Oh, wow. Not even one. They're all bureaucratic answers. Right. About the school... Yeah, like not like the value of socialization or like the power of sports to change lives or like having the drama club that's going to give a voice and nothing. Oh, my goodness. One teacher said <laughs> that there was some benefit to the kids. Wow. Um, so there's not a lot of nonprofit stuff in mm. Japan. Non- uh, nonprofit, like as a legal entity, is quite a recent thing. Right. It's generally like what retired people do. Mm. And still, most nonprofit groups are actually something attached to a company. And it may be partly a tax reduction vehicle. Right. Um, and, it, and it will be things like a company will run a company baseball team, which will be a non-profit entity. It's not like they're going out and doing good in the community. Mm. So, yeah, that volunteering started off as just to give my kids the best chance to meet other children away from school. Right in a more kind of inclusive and diverse environment. Yeah. Yeah, which has been... Uh, massively rewarding right and you can see like you can sort of imagine like what the impact of that's going to be and and how it will like set them up for a a different path in the future as well right Um, and not just your kids but all these other kids who are there too right who are coming for the same thing yeah in terms of mindset and knowledge and you know we we both know that there's you know there's the word semi like japan is semi right japan is very narrow Mm. Well, that's, I was thinking semi, semi what? This is this kind of strange American <laughs> accent? <laughs> and semi. Many, many kids in Japan just don't know that there is a world. Like, it's just, they don't know that there are other countries. And I mean, I, I, you know, I'm sure, sure you've often experienced like kids who will ask you, like, are you an American? They'll say things like, yeah, are you American? Or, yeah, just really odd. Or, yeah, yeah, they they don't understand that there are other countries that speak English. My favorite is uh, Eigo no Hito, uh, so the the English-speaking person, and also uh, what is it like, Muko, just like Mm -hmm. over there. I really love that question. And it's, it's just so strange that now, you know, we have so much access to the world in so many different ways, and yet in Japan there's this kind of narrowness of thought and that, yeah, I think it does have a big impact on children throughout their life if the outside world is some kind of foreign, mysterious, dirty, dangerous thing. Right. Whereas 
you know, with me bringing up international kids, it's really important for them to understand there are a couple of hundred countries and many different languages. It's not just English and Japanese. So yeah, being like a volunteer for an international group is is uh, fantastic for them to yeah just experience different cultures. Yeah. So you mentioned about you know the the priorities that you have, and I really thought it was very powerful what you said about like being very aware of time. And so when you, I don't know if you do, like observe time, think about time and the choices that you're making, like any, how do you like, is it, you know, fully in the here and now, like what I want to do, like even, you know, the choice to to do this interview is like, I'm hoping something you want to do for yourself and I don't know what else for, for thank you, helping me, doing good in the world. I don't know. But like, how do you make those decisions within your concept of time? Because for the rest, for, for me, like it's, it's an illusion how much time I have left, right? I have yeah. no idea. But you've been given different information, beating the odds of your time, but still in a different situation. I'm sorry, this is not a great question. No, no, but no, I think no. you know where I'm, where I'm driving at. Discuss. So there's issues with like, now and the future Mm. and the main issues are really though i think with the past so one of the things that happens is you know it's been five years since the diagnosis but a lot of that is incredibly compressed that it's quite yeah it's quite amazing five years have passed and Mm. i have done a lot in that time however there's been a lot of weeks where it was just chemotherapy was the thing that dominated my life or I have had a couple of big surgeries so there was a lot of time going to hospital or being in hospital or traveling back from hospital so there's this thing of like the compression of the past Mm. and then therefore kind of maybe not enjoying it so much because I think part of enjoying life comes from enjoying the past especially with friends but sometimes just on your own kind of remembering things. Yeah. It's a bit like, you know, I'm, I'm known as a very cynical person. I dislike most things and most people, but I absolutely love Japan. And I often forget that I love Japan. And when people come to Japan, I kind of rediscover all my love for it again. Like if I'm showing yeah. someone around Tokyo or if I'm talking to someone online who's planning a trip to Japan, and I'm like telling them about but all look this. Look at even how your face has changed now, right? It's like this really cheesy Japanophile grin coming on. Just that wonderful thing where like someone's going to come to Japan for the first time and you're just thinking like, oh, and, and they're so excited and asking about vending machines and 100 yen stores and all the cool stuff that, you know, is, is very easy to take for granted. So being kind of reminded of that. But then there's the other thing about the past of like closure and redemption, Mm. where if you're not told you're terminally ill, then there's a very strong relationship between the past and the future because you have the future to try and make right stuff from the past, right? Which may be things like you gave up playing piano as a kid, but at one one point in the future, you're going to take it up again. Right. And I'm like, well, okay, I did piano as a kid, but I'm not going to take it up again. I'd like to, I guess, but I don't have that much time. I have to be quite picky about what I'm going to commit to, particularly. And that's difficult because I have very, very, very wide interests. I find (laughs) almost everything interesting at some level. 
And just thinking about times in the past, maybe instants or long periods of time where you should have or could have done things better. Mm. Normal people, people who are not told that, you know, they've got a, an expiry date in the near future. Normal people, they have this kind of capacity to believe that they can redeem themselves or that time in a way that I don't really have. And that can be as simple as, you know, unread books on the bookshelves. I've got a couple of thousand books, I think possibly 2,500 books or something. And there are some I haven't read. I've read most of them. There are books that I've read many times, but there are some unread books that I really do want to read. Yeah. So things like on my shelf, I've got the Seven Pillars of Wisdom by Lawrence of Arabia. And that's a thick yeah. 800 page book. I haven't taken it down and started reading it yet. I do want to, but then there's lots of other films I'm never going to watch and books I'm never going to read and things I'm never. So, so it's a, I guess it's a bit like having a many midlife crises. Mm. I don't know. If, I don't know how much of this thing is a, is a male thing, but you know, there's a there's a point in a the male life where you realise you're not going to be a racing car driver, you're not going <laughs> to join a special air service. At least until recently, there was a point where you're not going to be an astronaut. Although that's all changing now. Yeah. You know, it, I was really, really, really happy to hear that the woman going up with uh, Bezos. Um, she's kind of old, right? Mm. I don't know the story. I'm not following. So, so you know that there, Jeff Bezos and his brother are going up to space next I... month, and there was one seat available, and a female aviation pioneer is getting the seat. So and cool. I think she's. I want to say she's definitely maybe seventies. Oh wow! I thought you were going to say like fifties. Uh, she's old. she's kind of old old. If you're listening to this, you're not old, but. <laughs> But for like our maybe image of space travel, the story we've been told, I'm worried for her osteoporosis when she returns. <laughs> idea of kind of doors closing. Yeah. It's a kind of a weird thing, but I've talked to a lot of guys about it and it is kind of a common thing. So that's made me think a lot about time, like what do I actually want to do? Mm. And ideas of legacy, like do you want to create something that's here afterwards? Another thing I've realized is um, I detest Buddhists and the living in the moment thing because I think like looking oh, forward Buddhist. to stuff is really important. Yeah, this is hope, right? Looking forward to it really yeah, is. Yeah, hope and just planning things together. So, so talking to my parents a lot who are back in the UK, yeah. they are both big travelers and you know both of them lived abroad at certain times in their life and they've been to probably 45 countries. And when I was talking a lot about lockdown, they were saying that it's very tough not being able to travel, but it's not even worth them planning travel. Yeah. And that, you know, usually they'd try a couple of cheap trips abroad each year, yeah. usually like one to come and see me and then one for something else. And they really missed planning travel and looking forward to it and thinking about what they yeah. want to do. Yeah, I totally, totally resonate with me. So I'm really into like looking forward to stuff, particularly looking forward to stuff with friends. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that for me, a really important thing about feeling happy mm. is reminiscing about stuff and really yes. enjoyable stuff and kind of looking forward to things I'm going to do. You know, so so like I'm, 
I've been looking forward to this all day. But then I'm also looking forward to kind of after this, people you and I know are going to watch this or listen to this yeah. and ask me stuff about and they're going to say, oh, they haven't heard, you know, about various things. And it's not just like this moment. Yeah. It's like looking forward to like the impact and the other people's, it will, the gift that keeps on giving, who knew? But what you've said about this, you know, this is part of, of Ikigai. There's a great researcher based in Tokyo, uh, Hasegawa Sensei. And in his model, he talks about the object of Ikigai in the past, in the present and in the future. So I was talking to him a couple of weeks ago and I was said, so tell me more about this in the past. It seems quite sad, right? He was saying a lot of in in seniors, they're like looking at the Ikigai in the past. And he's like, no, no, it's it's like having that memory and when you remember you know, you like on your spectrum, like, and how happy that made you, like that reliving that memory of those, or like the, um, the event, the hackers, the the hackers event that you did, when you go back to that memory, and all those experiences that you had in the moment, so you were feeling Ikigai in the moment. And when you go back to the memory, you have a feeling of Ikigai again. And the great thing that he shared was that actually Ikigai is even accessible to patients with dementia. Mm-hmm. You feel like, okay, they don't really have a presence. They maybe don't have so much of like the feeling of the future, but they have, they can go back and because their long-term memory is there. Yeah. So they can remember their first kiss. They can remember these different things, their achievements that they had. And that is bringing them this feeling of Ikigai. And then this idea of, you know, what's, looking forward to stuff you know this yeah yeah, like this planning the looking forward to stuff like that moment that like frigid of excitement like my daughter is really into a band called chocorabi and at the moment they're making many (laughs) chocolate rabbits uh they're making lots of announcements so she's like i'm really looking forward to this day because this magazine is coming out and Mm -hmm. on this day i'm going to find out about whether we won the lottery to get the tickets yeah. uh, not for the for the concert but they're doing like a cd passing out thing who knew mm-hmm. they still made cds but anyway yeah, for the bands so it's not of course she's looking forward to the concert but she's looking forward she's enjoying the feeling of looking forward yeah right like that anticipation yeah. i could have done a rocky horror picture show uh delivery of that but not today so yeah there's something in that as well and i totally understand with your parents like that yeah. Not being able to plan is, is, if you've been a planner, is really tough. So when I was first year university, I went to um, the local library at, at where I was at university in a um, very, very unpleasant city. Did you go to university? I want to ask now. Birmingham, of course. Oh, Birmingham. Yeah, no, no. I went out with a guy from Birmingham. That's all I've got to say. And I saw a book <laughs> on, there was like a little display of books. And I saw this book, I picked it up and it was called How to Develop a Perfect Memory by Dominic O'Brien. It's obviously worked. You can remember the name, the name of the book and the it had a author. Massive impact on my life because it made well. First of all, it got me very interested in memory. And in England, so you're around the same age as me, right? Yeah, probably a bit younger, but maybe at my age. Mm. Anyway, maybe a little bit later. I was born in '77. There you go. You can do your maths. So, like, memory was kind of a dirty word in education when we were at school, right? There was this big thing about rote learning as oh yes yes and memory is like the opposite of creativity I was yeah I was talking about this this week why someone asked me I'm in a Shakespeare reading group and they said why don't you know like the order of the kings 
Mm-hmm. Not my generation. My parents' generation knew, but we were all like, what were the common people doing? What did they eat? What might yep. it have been like to empty your own toilet? Exactly. Yeah, that so, kind of history, wasn't it? Exactly. And history would be like, make a face of the woman of Bath from Canterbury Tales out of pasta. <laughs> stick it on some sugar papers, that kind of thing. Just as Chaucer intended. <laughs> yeah, and it was it's really weird because people don't... Memory is such a big thing because to a very, very, very high degree, your memories are who you are. We've all seen Blade Runner and he talks to works out the woman's a replicant and she's got false memories and your memory is who you are and if you don't remember things about other people you're almost saying they make an impression on you which is why you know in business you when when you learn about networking and things there's a lot about how you remember people's names and you should take a genuine interest in it and that kind of thing and to go back to what you're saying about yeah, liking that the feeling of looking forward to things and the feeling of remembering things, that's because for your brain, when you remember something, it's recreated in your mm. brain. It's not like this bit of stone, in, a stone tablet is like dragged out from an archive. That's not how memory works at all. Right. Memory is a generative thing. And typically people who are so-called very creative tend to have very, very good memories partly because they can remember a lot of stuff to draw upon. Mm. Creativity, the big myth is that like you start with a blank bit of paper. Yeah. That's like the last thing we want to do. <laughs> um, so having a lot to draw upon and a lot of memory is about awareness and intention to remember when you are talking to someone, for example. Mm. So when someone tells you their name, I mean, the name is very important to them. Yeah. Wouldn't it be good to take it seriously and make an effort to remember and maybe use it a couple of times talking to them and and kind of care about it? Yeah. So I became really, really interested in memory and I read a lot of kind of some sciencey stuff, some pseudoscientific stuff, which is very interesting because the pseudoscientific stuff, although it's nonsense, it works just as well as the scientific stuff. <laughs> right. And I find that quite challenging because I like to be right. And there's a whole bunch of stuff where if you do it, it works, whether you do it for the wrong reasons or for the right reasons, there's kind of, you know, there are things that just work. Yeah. So yeah, I became very, very interested in memory and the connections to creativity and the connections to personal relationships, like trying, yeah, just taking people seriously and valuing what they say, because to them, it's extremely important. Yes. And shouldn't we kind of be respectful of that? And then the other reason it was an absolute life-changing book is it opened my life to the world of self-development because I had never heard of the concept of like learning something outside of school. Right, like an academic topic, yeah. You know, I I was very kind of studious as a child outside of school, not in school, but outside of school, mm. I loved learning things. When it, I, I didn't really know that it was something that adults would go on to kind of, some would go and do. And then later I found the vast majority of adults don't. So in Mm. fact, the US, the majority, so over 50% of people, when they leave high school, that's the last time they read a nonfiction book. They close the book and that's it. Over 50% of Americans. And uh, interestingly, over 
over 50% of book sales in America are as gifts. And you can imagine many of those books are not read, which is why if you're doing a book, you want to make it very kind of giftable. Yes. As you told me the other day where we talked yeah. about Can Giraffe Swim? Perfect gift. Christmas is coming faster than you think. With Matthew is mentioned in this book because he was the inspiration mm. behind the, uh, the closing concept. Matthew Dons, thank you for suggesting the business concept of Jennifer's Giraffe Baths. It was like a, a magical moment sat on the sofa with my daughter. The book had just arrived. I started reading it to her and pointed out my name in the book and she just couldn't believe it. Oh, that makes me so happy. And it was just wonderful. And that's something that's going to stick with me forever. I mean, that's not going to fade, um, partly because I've got the physical book um, and partly because I have the physical daughter. <laughs> but that kind of thing... Yeah, so probably you won't be able to see this because of Zoom, but... Oh, yes, a little bit of picture, yes. And it's got messages on the back. So today I got this from the cancer clinic because I'm going in for surgery on Monday and I may not survive. And anyway, if it all goes well, I'll probably be in hospital for like five five weeks. And after that, wouldn't make it back to the cancer clinic for a while. So I... I uh, for about a year, I've been doing a volunteer English lessons for the clinic. Wow. So every Friday night and Saturday night, I jump on Zoom. And so it's a two groups, an advanced level and a beginner's level on Saturday night. So this was from the beginner's group. And one of them's drawn pictures of the members of the group and got the group to write messages in English on the back. So this, you know, this is really interesting because it's like a physical embodiment of um, memories and it triggers memories. And it makes me think about the English lessons and how much I've got out of them. And also it's kind of connected with what it was like today with 15 members of staff at the clinic all came out to kind of see me and take photos with me and stuff. And there were loads of presents and they'd never been like this for any other patient of the clinic in the history of the clinic. Um, So that's just a really lovely thing. Yeah. And it will, you know, obviously I'm going to have it at the hospital when I'm kind of coughing up blood and stuff. It will be something to, you know, give me a little bit of strength, hopefully. Right. So like the physical embodiment of memories, I think is, is really interesting. You know, this is why like that Marie Kondo stuff is so toxic. I was just thinking that. I was going, bugger off, Marie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because, you know, stuff has meaning, even if it's just meaning that we've, put in it yeah whether it's like you know something that was like the first thing you bought with your own money yeah what was the first album that you bought with your own money because you were asking me about no, uh... why am i going to tell you i will send that to you in a private message. oh no what's okay what's the first one that you will admit to that's going to make like match the persona that you want to leave on this podcast cool cynical so the, the, the first albums I have, I like admit to having was Pablo Honey and The Benz. Yeah, I, I got those and I then recorded them onto either side of a, of a cassette tape. And then that was like my memory of my GCSEs doing a school revision and just literally listening to one side telling others and just hours. 45 hours. minutes, right? Exactly. Hours and hours and hours. <laughs> but you've chosen a good one not going to admit publicly to a 
Well, mine was five star rain or shine. So I was a lot, lot younger then. I don't think I bought that with my own money, but it was, it's like the first album that I remember, like I wanted and I asked for and I got. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's, you know, and then like music that you listen to with friends that has more meaning. So this is really interesting. So there's, there's a song I've been listening to a lot recently by a group called Here We Go Magic, which is like some hipster group in the US. And they got this song called um, How Do I Know? And I chanced upon it on YouTube or whatever. And it wasn't a song I particularly liked, but the video is one of the best videos I've ever seen. And it's really interesting how the, I now like the song, but I think it's mainly because I remember the video. This is now really interesting listening to it. I don't know if I genuinely, so I now feel I really like the song and I don't know genuinely if I, (laughs) is it that I like it? So a, a bit like when you wake up and you don't know if you remembering a dream from that night or from years ago. Mm. So particularly if you sometimes get reoccurring dreams, it can be quite, it can kind of trick you. Mm. Does it matter? Does it matter if you, if it happened that night or years ago or that you now like the song because of its connections with the video? Does it matter? Can we just accept that this brings me joy? Yeah. And that with, you know, we, we remember things that are real and things that are not real mm. with uh, similar um, fidelity. So it's one of the things you learn about in memory training is that you can take things that are real and attach them to an imaginary journey around your house. And if you run out of rooms in your house, you can add imaginary floors and the memories are just as vivid but a Sherlock Holmes yeah exactly exactly yeah. yeah more questions Jennifer well I know we're running out of time yes we are so I'm going to ask you the question you know it's online like you can have hours and hours and hours. <laughs> in the online world we don't have to stick with that's true but I have promised I've promised a bedtime story to my son so yes I must do. So the question that I want to ask you, uh, there's, two, there's two more questions. Uh, one is, what's the question that I should have asked you? This was a question you said you should always ask doctors. Yep, you should. Yep, or anyone. So I'm going to ask you, what's the question that I should have asked you? So the question you should ask is, is like, Matthew, a cynical, negative person, how on earth did you get interested in marketing and why on earth would you even care about something as crass and as superficial as selling people stuff? Matthew, as a cynical, and I can't remember what you said because I haven't read the memory book person, um, <laughs> negative, cynical and negative person. Why the heck did you get interested in marketing? And I was laughing too much that I missed the end of the question because I was trying to remember it, but I hadn't written it down. I went, this is too long. I wish I'd started to write down. So I wasn't listening. Oh, I'm a terrible interviewer. Graham Norton, take my job. Yeah. Why would you be interested in anything as crass as selling stuff to people? Why would you be interested? Anything is grass, selling stuff to people. <laughs> That's a very difficult question. Yeah, well, you asked it. <laughs> so I, when I came back to Japan, so I was in Japan for kind of a year and a half. So I came end of 2001. I taught uh, English, English conversation school, went back to the UK, became an IT instructor, um, missed Japan too much, came back to Japan a few a couple of years later and decided... I was never going to work for a company again. <laughs> and I do my own English school. That was the only thing I could think of doing. So I taught English at home, a little English school, just local. I taught everyone, kids, housewives, a wine waiter, me basically doing everything. And it never occurred to me that 
I could get some books or training about how to run a successful business or how to get compute customers. That never <coughs> entered my head. So I then, because of doing like online webby stuff, I then got a little bit of consulting work helping some people with a website doing uh, search engine optimization. This was back in back in the day when it was a relatively newish thing. And I learned about this thing called conversion rate optimization, CRO. So it's all very well getting people to your website. But if you focus on that, it's a bit like someone with a shop next to a busy main road that kind of stares out the window saying, oh, loads of people are driving past. They're obviously going to come and buy our left-handed scissors or whatever niche product we sell, which is, of course, nonsense. So a friend of mine, who is a very astute business person, Mitch Altman, he recommended I read this book called The Myth. And it was like a mind-blowing book because it was sort of about doing things in a systematic way. And coming back to like the time stuff, it mm. was like when you're tangled up in doing something, so what Gerber terms working in the business, it's very difficult to work on the business. And when the stakes are high, like when someone says you have terminal cancer, you have to somehow carve out time to like work on your life. Mm. So that got me interested in like business and marketing and reality, because I found out that when you talk to most people about marketing, what they talk about maybe is advertising and particularly branding. And that's actually the minority of the marketing, both in terms of like monetary amount and definitely in terms of impact. And that marketing was really about getting other people to take action. That's what it's all about is get people to take action and trying to get people to take an action that is good for them, which may be them becoming your client if you're some kind of coach or buying your product or donating to your nonprofit organization or giving up smoking um, or becoming a volunteer or studying something that is important or taking some action for the environment. It's all about taking action. Mm. The thing about taking action is that we can then measure and realize if we're being effective or ineffective. We can say, well, I tried it this way and nobody took action. Maybe I should try it another way. As opposed to the normal thing of marketing, which is kind of me too marketing. Like, look at me, I've been selling Wellington boots for 25 years and here's my photo next to a giant Wellington boot. Come and buy my boots. It's a very odd idea, but is what most of us think of as marketing. So the kind of marketing I'm talking about, which is actually the majority of real marketing, is often called direct response marketing yeah. because you are directly asking people to do something. And we've all, I mean, with the cancer stuff, I always see big cancer charities that are just burning money on brand building and so-called awareness raising, and they just won't do anything to ask for action because it if I ask you to do something, you can ignore me or you can say no, and that's a rejection. Yeah. Right? So it, there's a discomfort there. If I just say, here's my nice website, then there's no kind of rejection, right? There's no, if, if I have a brand building advert in, you know, raising awareness of my nonprofit organization, well, it's just a thing. It's not asking people to do anything. I don't know if it's working or not. And I can always rationalize, well, at least I'm getting my name out there. These people know me. Yeah. Yeah. So that's why 
marketing has become. I mean, you know, if if we don't use the word marketing, you could say like communicating with people to get them to take action. Yeah. You know, is another way of putting it. That's good for them and good for you. You're going to ask me another question after that, Jennifer? Well, the other question I was going to ask was, it's maybe similar. What's your ask for listeners, watchers of Vicky Go with Jennifer Shinkai? What action would you like them to take after listening to our chat? So if they are anyway interested or in or affected by cancer, they could go to matthewdoms.org, which it forwards to like a GoFundMe page. But if you don't want to make an donation, just click updates and um, you'll see five years of videos, many of which explain about cancer and what to do if a family member has cancer or you're unfortunately diagnosed with cancer or anything like that. Yeah, so that's the would be one thing. And then a touchy-feely thing would be spend some time thinking about thinking because it just opens up a, another world, like thinking about how you remember stuff or how could you make decisions in a better way. Time spent thinking about thinking is really worth doing. And I just learned recently um, a term for the opposite. So this is one to write down, thought terminating cliche Ooh. A thought terminating cliche is when you know your it is what it is your it is what it is jennifer it will probably turn out okay don't overthink jennifer mm-hmm. and th- these are these are very 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 dangerous they're more common i think in a or they are more endemic in asian culture particularly in japan the country of China, of course, was plagued with Taoism for many, many, many millennia, or well, not millennia, but centuries at least, right? Mm. This idea that, like, well, you shouldn't think because the nature of the universe is unknowable. So, like, don't try and find anything out. No point to ask the questions. Thought terminating cliches are terrible because they're a dangerous habit, they're intoxicating. And, you know, whatever is going on in your life, I just say, oh, don't take things too seriously. Or, oh, just, just see how it goes. That's, that's not a way to live. <laughs> really. Thank you. That's a great, a great closing on the thought terminating cliche. How ironic to wrap up with that. Uh, so I do, in a non-cliche way, feel really honoured and grateful that you spent this uh, Thursday night with me at such short notice at such a busy time for you and your family especially after hearing about like how you are thinking about uses of time so I really hope that this has ticked some of your boxes and um, yeah I can't wait to get the comments and feedback from our friends on uh, what they enjoyed about about this conversation what their non-thought terminating cliches (laughs) are what made them think what made them question hopefully what they did as a result and what they did as a result action. as well. Yes, action, direct response, podcasting, what we'll be doing from now on. So yes, everyone, please uh, go. All the links will be down in the show notes. So you can go and check out uh, all of Matthew's information, links, uh, find out more about his stories if it's something which is directly affecting you or one of your loved ones as well. There's lots of resources available for you there. And if it's not something which is affecting you right now, actually, it could be affecting someone that you know without you knowing it. So I think it's a great thing to get educated about it. You never know who you'll need to help. So thank you so much, Matthew. Well, thank you. Wishing you 
all the best for next week. Keep us posted with how everything goes. Assuming I survive, yes, I will try. Yes, I know. Don't know. I'm not religious, but I'll send some. I'll send some vibes and prayers. Whatever. Why not? Can't do any harm, can it? So yeah. Thank you so much for today. Take care. Bye bye. Thank you so much for listening today. I really hope that you found something you could take away from the episode to help you find your own Ikigai and integrate it into your daily life. And I'd love to hear exactly what resonated with you. So pop over to see me on LinkedIn or on my Facebook page. You can find the links in the show notes below. And let me know what you thought was the most important takeaway from the podcast today. And sharing is caring. So feel free to share this episode with one of your friends who you think could benefit from hearing about living a life of purpose. Looking forward to see you on the next episode of Ikigai with Jennifer Shinkai.